Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Abdal Hakimarad. Uh, how are you? I'm well and uh, so excited about this. Really good to be on the show. Glad to have you here. And I'm going to read a bit of your, your identity at Cambridge and what brought me to you to invite you on. So uh, you are the founder and dean of the Cambridge Muslim College, Aziz Foundation Professor of Islamic Studies at both Cambridge Muslim College and Ebrahim College, the Director of Studies at Wilson College, and the Shaikh Saeed Lecturer of Islamic Studies at the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. This sounds like, in your words, uh, just before we put it on, a dusty dawn sometimes. And you came recommended to me by a listener who saw my increasing guests of uh, religious backgrounds, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, humanist. And I think in this country, I think the mainstream environmental view of religion is that it doesn't really get the environment. And evangelicals in the U.S. helping elect many people who are supported with a lot of fossil fuel money, I think a lot of environmentalists look at them as an enemy. But in my experience working with strongly religious and people working on the environment is that we share on the emotional side, the motivational side, I find much more connection because the emotions are of, of joy and glory and duty and not a duty like obligation or sacrifice, but a duty, there's a humility and a, um, a connection to something greater than oneself that I often don't feel so strongly with people. If I go to a march for the climate, it doesn't feel the same. So that's a journey for me to discover an area that's new for me. And hopefully I'll sort of bring that, if it's, I'm not sure how new it is to others, but to bring these other traditions to uh, sustainability. That's what brought me to you. And I know that when you wrote back, one of the first things you mentioned was um, the uh, Cambridge Central Mosque, I think it's called. And so it, it sounds like this stuff overlaps with you, but now I've talked a lot. And I'm curious if you could share a bit of your history uh, becoming an educator, a professor, a, a community builder. Professors don't have... Uh... Headline-grabbing life stories, I'm afraid. Uh, as you say, mostly it's gathering dust in old manuscript libraries. Uh, uh, not many adventures, but I do have this strangely, or perhaps to me, certainly rewardingly amphibious existence in that in my day job, I'm a kind of standard Cambridge don, put on my gown, and I drone on to my students in a rather fustian Edwardian way. And then I kind of uh, flit away and shapeshift and become the preacher of the Cambridge Mosque. And actually, that's not as strange a transition as you might think, because, because I'm situated in the divinity faculty. Many, possibly most of my colleagues also live a kind of, as it were, epistemologically double life. They might be lecturing on the book of Jeremiah during the day and tearing it apart with uh, the higher criticism. But they're also, say, lay preachers. Quite a few are ordained in the Church of England. We've had some active Catholics. There's a, a rabbi in the faculty. So it's actually an interesting corner of academe uh, where people have uh, an actual engagement in their subject rather than just teaching it from a from a vast distance. So uh, I guess I'm eccentric, but uh, not that eccentric in that I'm in a faculty where a lot of people have this kind of interesting uh, dual um, orientation in their lives. So yes, I teach at the University of Cambridge, uh, which is a kind of repository of English eccentrics and uh, sort of uh, Harry Potter type uh, odd byways. Uh, it's, it is a fascinating place, if you like, the sort of Gothic aspects of, of English culture, I quite enjoy it. Some parts of the university haven't been electrified yet. For instance, I dined in a college the other day and the, the drawing room where we took uh, 
took our uh, dessert afterwards, um, a flunky comes in and lights the candles because they haven't got around to putting in electric lights that yet. So that still exists and we kind of <laughs> enjoy it. But then obviously England, this uh, global hub and Cambridge in particular, sort of a world city, attracting great minds from around the world. And we have a very lively Muslim community here. So yes, I, I divide my existence not between town and gown, but between gown and turban, if you like which I find to be a more symbiotic and happy form of coexistence in my soul than a lot of people might might uh, might think. Um, I'm kind of living the clash of civilizations and finding that it isn't really a clash. It's a kind of interesting mixed marriage, really, with some very interesting <laughs> uh, genetic consequences. Well, that's very interesting to me that, okay, so if you live an amphibious life, that tells me there must have been some motivation to put you in that area. And I'm hearing that now you're saying it's a very, the, what people would expect to see a clash, there's not a clash. Did you expect there to be a clash? If so, did you dive into a clash? Did you know that there wasn't a clash and you wanted to resolve it ahead of time? What was your motivation? Uh, well, we're talking about ancient history now, uh, the late 1970s. I'm sure you don't remember that sort of <laughs> antediluvian time huh? when uh, young people of my background were drawn to things Eastern, Eastern spiritualities. Sufism was part of the mix, as well as looking for a guru in India. And the whole Islamist, Khomeinist, fundamentalist thing didn't exist, and nobody imagined back then that it could exist. Uh, I think for the first 10 years of my career as a Muslim, there was not a single act of Islam-related terrorism anywhere on earth, and it didn't occur to us that that might exist. So it wasn't really a sense of it being a clashing rival or a dark other uh, to a pristine Western self, more a sense of uh, a place of adventure, a place where the life of the spirit was still cultivated, a place of difference, diversity, perhaps a certain romantic excitement in the, the mystic East, uh, very different to the stereotypes we have today. So that, and is that what you found? Did you find more, less? I found more than that, because the kind of Arabian Nights, fascinating flying carpet orient is hard to find now. But the depth of the spiritual, religious, saintly life is actually there when it hasn't been corroded by the twin threats to it, fundamentalism on one hand and secularism on the other. It doesn't have many friends, but yeah, I had some extraordinary moments. Going to Mecca was the kind of culminating, amazing, unbelievable moment of my life, which still kind of brings tears to my eyes when I remember a kind of otherworldly miraculousness of that. And then sitting in sort of ancient Cairo mosques on an old carpet with a few flea-bitten cats running about, hearing classes being given in a way which you wouldn't experience in Europe and wouldn't have experienced for hundreds of years, a genuine medieval space with the kind of courtesy and the piety and the quest for sanctity and holiness that, that goes with that. So, yeah, superficially, the Muslim world looks like a, a catastrophe. And superficially it is, politically, economically, of course, but the depths of it, uh, I found enormous reserves of humaneness, good neighbourliness, families holding together, people in love with God. It was uh, a progressive unveiling, which was actually not what I had expected it to be at the outset. I'm also listening on a personal level that I hadn't anticipated, that uh, my parents met in India Mm -hmm. And uh, in the 60s, and 
to this day, I've not figured out how my mom, who was born Lutheran and raised on a farm in South Dakota with, I mean, more cows probably than people around. And my dad, who was raised Jewish in Pittsburgh, how they got there in the first place, I never quite got it. It was, you know, Gandhi was gone. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that. Beatles hadn't gone there yet. And they didn't, I don't know how to put this. My dad has certainly embraced the city of Ahmedabad and and, uh, India, although he hasn't, he's remained Jewish and and very much Mm so. So Israel, he goes to a lot too. Anyway, so I'm listening to you as, as... Someone who around similar times was going through something similar as, as my family. And I, and I guess this is, I think in the West, we have a tendency to look at other cultures coming into our culture. And, but I think it's the whole world. I'm, I'm now putting my hands to the fingers are crossing each other. Everyone's going everywhere. I think everyone's getting immigration from everywhere, but everyone doesn't think of I'm going there or people like me are going over there. It's just people like there are coming over here. Mm-hmm. I think it's happening everywhere. Yeah, Americans probably can cope with it better than we Europeans because you're a country founded on immigration, apart from the poor, hapless remnants of the indigenous, legitimate populations of North and South America. Everybody has come from somewhere else. But we Europeans, especially we English who live on an island and aren't really on the way to anywhere, are quite bad at assimilating the idea that 100 years ago we were going out and populating continents and ruling India uh, and ruling the waves, but now they're coming here and making us as diverse as we tried to make those places, but not in a kind of conquest mode, but in a suppliant migrant mode. Dozens of people drowning in the channel every day now, and it's going to get worse. And actually, part of that is to do with climate change, of course. So we're we're slowly getting used to that. But I would say that America at its best, in a city like New York, for instance, is actually better at recognising the benefits of diversity, despite the questions of race and all of those things and the lingering anti-Semitism and that whole baggage, which is still a problem, than the Anglo-Saxon thing, which on the surface smiles when Indian biologists come to Cambridge and get great prizes, but deep down feels that to be English, you have to be a certain kind of thing and have to have a surname that you could find in Chaucer and that is immutable. So uh, I think we do have perhaps deeper problems in Europe when we relate to the reality of modern British multiculturalism. A city like Leicester, for instance, is now a majority non-white city. Even a generation ago, that would have been that would have blown everybody's minds. But London is now about fifteen percent Muslim and counting with lots of other minorities. So it's it's part of our reality, and the smarter people can see the fun of it and the excitement and the colour and the diversity. And, of course, diversity is great, and the old monochrome 1950s sort of meat-and-tooth-edge England was shatteringly dull and provincial and xenophobic. So I think it's been beneficial for us. But it is a new experience. A place like India has always been diverse for thousands of years. the, The different religious minorities, Christianity came to India before it came to England. And it's accepted as part of their reality in in Kerala and South India. It's an apostolic church, the St. Thomas Christians. And then Islam has been there for as long as Islam has existed. There's a Zoroastrian community. Buddhism was born in India, etc., etc. So for them, (laughs) globalization is part of what they've always been. Sad now to see the kind of political, to my view, distortion of Hindu religion into a kind of exclusionary ideology. But historically, India was much, much better at accommodating spiritual diversity than we Europeans have been. There was never an Indian Inquisition, for instance, whereas Europe's story is full of uh, religious purges of various kinds. In, I think if 
Hinduism is like the most accommodating religion, but it depends on who's in government situations. Do I remember right from one of your videos that Islam reached Russia before Christianity did? Uh, that's right. Yeah. If you, I don't know, if you've seen uh, the film The 13th Warrior, Antonio Banderas is in it, uh, uh, being an Arab prince who's carried up the Volga River by marauding Vikings to do various improbable things in Scandinavia. And he goes through what later becomes Russia. And that's based on Ibn Fadlan's ninth century narrative of what the Russian lands were like. And yeah, it was Ivan the Terrible who exterminated really Islam in the Russian basin and prohibited any non-Christian worship. But before then, yeah, the, the story is that uh, when he captured the great Muslim city of Kazan, which was this amazing, amazing place on the Volga, and he tore down the great eight minareted mosque of Khor Sharif, which was famous throughout the East, uh, he had the stones carried on bullock carts to Moscow to build St. Basil's Cathedral, which still has that kind of slightly oriental, yeah. Eastern feel to it. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a big story. Europe at its fringes has uh, issues with wars against Muslims. The Inquisition in Spain was created to deal with the problem of Muslim persistence after the reconquest of southern Spain. Uh, Sicily had something similar. It's uh, an unhappy history. But, yeah, Islam until 300 years ago was the great globalizing superpower in the world with its own, incidentally, history of colonialism, empire building, and some of the things that Muslims grumble, at, grumble about today. Although, of course, in a very different mode, it generally wasn't racist the way we Europeans have often been. When you talked about the difference between, you said, gown, for you, between gown and, and uh, turban, is your audience, I, it feels like you have multiple audiences because one would be Muslims who you're speaking to about their faith. But it sounds like also British who are not used to Muslim and teaching the, the British Islam history. And the yep. am I right that there's two different audiences or, or multiple different audiences? More than two, yes. Obviously, if you're an academic lecturing to uh, anxious 19-year-olds from the home counties, uh, you have to present Islam as a history of institutions and texts and movements and you just describe it and analyze it in historical and universally verifiable ways. You're not really supposed to uh, theologize too much. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I cross the river and I go to the mosque and I start thundering at my congregation. And obviously, it's a different kind of discourse. But I suspect my Christian colleagues are engaged in the same kind of thing. That's, it seems to me that that's not really a problem. Students have the right not to be propagandized to and just to get a description of what the best scholarship is saying. But congregations want something a little bit warmer that's from the heat of, of faith and insight and the scriptural tradition. But of course, Muslim community here is, is colossally diverse. There's no single mm -hmm. preponderant demography, and there's only about, about five or 6,000 Muslims in Cambridge. It's not a huge community. But actually, we crunched the census returns recently just to see who our community is. Uh, I'm sure that in American censuses, there's no question on religion. Is that right? Because of the constitutional indifference to religion. I imagine there isn't. Good question, but I don't know the answer. I imagine there isn't, but it, it's an optional question in the UK census. So we looked at that data and we found that, well, about a third of Muslims in Cambridge are of Bangladeshi heritage, but we have large Arab Indonesian communities. We have a Chinese Muslim community. We have Venezuelan Muslims in Cambridge which I hadn't known, about 11% of Muslims in Cambridge are white. So it's really very diverse. So that creates problems for the preacher because even though the liturgy 
thank God, is the same across the Muslim world. And when they come to the mosque in Cambridge, having been used to worshipping in Jakarta or somewhere, there aren't any surprises in store for them. But the kind of the way in which their minds face Mecca, as it were, is from different directions. And there's different levels of conservatism, different attitudes to gender, for instance, different drastically different levels of education. You know, Nobel Prize winners plus Kurdish taxi drivers. It's quite difficult to sculpt a sermon that is really accessible to all of them. So, yeah, enormous diversity in the Muslim community. In fact, you could probably say Muslim communities, I would say, uh, certainly in the UK, because the communities tend to stick together on ethnic grounds, although that's starting to change. So that also is a big issue if you're creating sermons that everybody can relate to. Okay, everybody agrees. There's the Quran, there's the Hadith, which are the sayings of the Prophet. They're not going to push back against that. But the way in which they apply to the realities of people's life is going to be... Uh, really discrepant. And there can be real issues on which they disagree. For instance, the community is more or less agreed on the Palestine issue, I guess. But when the Iraq war began, and that was a huge issue for our community, it wasn't really possible for me to preach taking sides, because I knew in the congregation, there were Kurds who wanted Saddam Hussein pulled down, even if it was by the great Satan. Uh, there was an Iraqi guy who had been maimed under torture in Saddam's prisons, who was not going to put up with the sermon that was against the overthrow of Saddam. So it's, it's very diverse, and you really have to retain those sensitivities because people have a right not to feel alienated from the mosque by something they've heard. I have a lot of questions about the mosque, and I guess I'll start with, was a goal of it to continue to promote diversity within the mosque or to distill out one community or both or other things? The mosque is non-sectarian because even though Muslims, we disagree amongst ourselves. The form of worship is more or less universal. So we don't have, say, the arguments that are currently unfolding in the Catholic Church over the current Pope's attempt to clamp down on the Latin mass. We don't have any controversies like that. But yes, there's enormous, as I say, ethnic diversity sectarian diversity doesn't express itself, as I say, liturgically, but uh, there are other sort of ways in which it can manifest itself. There are tedious arguments over the extent to which female worshippers should or should not be secluded, for which there's really no sort of simple answer in the text of Islamic law, which leave it pretty much open. The extent to which people are comfortable with non-Muslims walking in off the street and sort of watching the worship or even joining in, which sometimes happens, which they're not used to in countries of origin. So there's there's a lot of issues, some of which are quite unexpected, uh, which we have to field. But generally, it's a successful, integrated, happy community, I would say. I'm wondering if, are we living in a time when this diversity and challenge of bringing it together is greater, less, or has it always been this way? And is it because of you being in Cambridge, or is it, or has it always been this way? Or maybe it's less than ever. Yeah, it depends where you're from. If you're, say, from northern Nigeria, in one of the great Muslim cities, you're probably used to lots of different tribes and different languages. It's a kind of pluralistic space. Uh, the Islamic world has always been a world of travel of journeys, sort of Sinbad the sailor, I suppose, a web of trade, pilgrimages, commerce. So people are pretty used to diversity, unlike us in England who are not particularly. But it can be a bit startling for, you know, our imam is Bosnian, for instance, 
And the congregation on the big days can be about 2,000 people coming for the prayer. It's a, a big event. And some people may not understand his accent or may not quite get what he's getting at, or they may be used to certain prayers after the formal prayer that they really think should be there, and they get upset because it's not there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of issues like that. But, but generally, we find that the, as with the basic practices of Islam, like the Hajj pilgrimage, where you've got thousands of languages probably coming together, four million people who've never met each other coming to the holy city, uh, because the rules are the same for everybody, people generally get on and you have this amazing sense of unity and diversity. There's a great moment, but halfway through the pilgrimage, when people take off their sort of white towel sheet things, which is what you're supposed to do most of the pilgrimage in, and you go back to your own clothes. So suddenly, there are the Nigerians in their sort of bling outfits, and there are the Indians, and there's it's, it's a world of colour suddenly, and you see everybody's diversity, having everybody been pretty uniform for a while. Uh, so that, I think, is, is one of the beauties of Islam. And we have such an ethnically diverse community. We have Africans, we have Bosnians, Albanians, quite a few Indonesians. Now, that mosque may not be representative of all mosques in Europe, but increasingly, as communities intermarry, move around, as the conversion rate goes up, it's becoming the norm rather than the exception. If you visit some of the mosques in Germany, for instance, you'll see you know, all of the human races there, basically. It reminds me of growing up, in, uh, in American Philadelphia, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X were very big. And yep. reading Malcolm X's description of his experience, I mean, was, I've read his autobiography and he talked, it's like all this talk of the blonde haired, blue eyed devil. And then he has this one experience and yep. it's gone. I mean, he completely switches. Yeah, because the idea that other members of the human family, who, if you're an Abrahamic monotheist, all come from the same ancestor anyway, is some kind of antichrist. It's not, not normal to human beings. I don't think we're naturally xenophobic. And there's a kind of liberation that comes when you realize that actually other people have the same kind of concerns as yourself. They get, they get married, they uh, get sick, they want to get an education. That's a very basic lesson, but one that I think when people really get it, is experienced as a kind of a kind of freedom from something that's not natural to ourselves and is is horrible. And I think that uh, you know, when, when it's done correctly, something like anti-racism really has to be pitched as a kind of liberation, not just of the other but of ourselves. That really we're missing so much that's beautiful about human diversity. Look at the physical beauty of other human beings. I remember the first time I went to Timbuktu in Mali. I mean, I'd never seen people with such dark skin before, even in, I've been to South Brooklyn and parts of the United States, but really extraordinarily dark. And there were these women who were all about a foot taller than me, and I'm six foot one. And they were kind of looking down on me from their great height with these huge kind of purple turbans that they have on their heads and all looking like queens, amazingly aristocratic and also stunningly statuesque and beautiful. That yeah, an experience of seeing the beauty of others, not just other races, but I think other religions as well. You step inside a great cathedral and maybe half of your sort of antipathy to Christianity is likely to fall away if you've got a, a functioning brain, I think. Beauty, beauty is, is really important. Uh, and we try to emphasize that in, in mosque design in the UK in order to uh, reduce some of the prejudice that exists against Muslim communities. 
I was wondering about that. It sounds as if you've played a, a leadership role in the mosque. In it, I mean, probably in its, its existence, but also in its design. And I, I had to take a quote out from the article that you linked to that said, the urban intervention of inserting a mosque capable of welcoming a thousand, of welcoming a thousand worshipers within a low-rise residential neighborhood in Cambridge, England, without dominating it, is masterful. And I wondered if, then it also said the defining internal characteristic of the mosque is the timber trees. So like trees, which um, I'll put a link in so that people can see pictures of it. I haven't seen it any more than just those pictures, which form the structural support for the roof and the roof lights. You were just talking about beauty now. And what made me think of this quote was the beauty of nature, I think you're talking about. And I was wondering if that was, I thought, I bet that's a deliberate choice of something unifying everybody that if we're going to put something that people don't expect in the middle of Cambridge, let's bring beauty in, let's bring natural beauty in that we all, I mean, I was about to say we all love trees. I mean, there's a lot of people cutting down a lot of trees these days, but there's something about nature. Yeah, yeah. It turned into an interesting cultural question, how you place in the center of the city of Newton and Darwin and Stephen Hawking, some of the great kind of troublemakers for religion, really, of modernity, how you place a mosque, in other words, a symbol of the most conservatively oriented, probably religious tradition that, that exists locally, what it should look like, what it should reference. So we had to deal with a lot of, a lot of currently tricky questions. What we didn't want to do was something that would replicate one of the great styles of Islamic architecture from overseas. Everybody loves the Taj Mahal. Everybody loves the Alhambra. Islamic architecture is, everybody loves it, whatever they think of the religion. But a facsimile of an overseas expression of Islam might convey a, a wrong impression of the religion's failure to belong. So we tasked the architect with the idea of creating a British mosque. And he furrowed his brow because, of course, unlike designing a mosque in Spain, for instance, where they have a local tradition of Islamic culture, England has never significantly interacted with Muslim culture. So what he did, in what I think is a very successful and natural and unforced way, was to reference, first of all, the fan bolting of the great Gothic cathedrals, and particularly King's College Chapel, which is about a mile from our mosque and is maybe the great masterpiece of the late Gothic uh, kind of miracle of light and stone and geometry. It's, it's uh, breathtaking. But that style, as David, our architect, knew, re- actually reflects Islamic or Saracenic influence on medieval Europe. There's a historian called Diana Dark who's just published a book called Stealing from the Saracens, in which she points out that the great themes of Gothic architecture, particularly the vaulting, the pointed arch, uh, OG arches, spandrels, stained glass windows, and so forth, actually come from the Islamic world and were introduced into Europe to replace the Romanesque. So it's a very good talking point. This isn't the Gothic style symbolizing the Goths, because the Goths, German barbarians running around naked in their forests, knew nothing about building. But it's Saracenic architecture. When Sir Christopher Wren was asked why he'd chosen a kind of Palladian Romanesque style for St. Paul's Cathedral, he said, uh, because the Gothic style is not Gothic, it's Saracenic. He thought it was inappropriate to use Gothic for a cathedral because it was Muslim. <laughs> so using that kind of historical fact, we were able to, as it were, reclaim the Islamicity of the Gothic, but in a rather un- unpolemical way, uh, so that the uh, vaults, which are made of timber, as they fan out, actually form evidently 
Islamic geometrical patterns, which have symbolic value that maybe a small percentage of Muslims can actually decode, which are to do with what's called the breath of the compassionate way of understanding why God created the world is that because God is love and compassion, he wished us all to have the blessing of existence. Otherwise, why bother? So it's to do with the creative power of God, which also links to life itself, the great miracle of life. And a tree, of course, is one of the most moving symbols of that because it's big and you can, as it were, be embraced by a forest. I guess a whale is bigger, but it's a bit hard to hug a new whale, I guess. But we we do get a sense of not just seeing nature, but being in nature in some almost womb-like way when we go into a forest environment. And maybe that links us to very kind of archaic, primordial, paleolithic impulses. But that may not itself be a bad thing. I think religion at its best links us to humans' natural sense that the natural world is, is sacred. So that's the kind of rhetoric of the building. And there's a lot of other features about it, but basically it's a, a British Islamic timber Gothic mosque in Cambridge. And although that sounds like lots of ingredients in a single pot, uh, it does hold together very well. And it's getting all of these architectural awards. So we're now finalists for the Sterling Prize, which is Britain's top architecture award. And we've won about 10 awards already just for design reasons. It's, it's really been a hit. I have to comment on a quick aside that you, you said you talked about dusty old things. I'm like, you failed at yep. communicating dustiness here. This is, I mean, I'm totally intrigued. And that said, when you first talked about being a, a salamander or an amphibian, I read that as you, what's the word, not exacerbating, but uh, expressing the differences. But actually, the amphibian thrives in both. And, and now I'm reading it as a unifier, not a unifier, but a, um, you're bringing things together in a way that is like a stew maybe as you mentioned that it yeah it's you're someone who thro- who can be in different environments and work on both i mean someone a fish can't really live on land and an animal can't really live underwater or sorry mammal say but you do both yeah i don't experience any kind of cognitive dissonance in fact i quite enjoy it commuting between different worlds and and I lived for the best part of 10 years in the Middle East, speaking Arabic and immersing myself completely in that life and still really, really, really enjoy getting into that world where people are always quoting poetry and there's immaculate courtesy and there's a sense of belongingness to a great sacred literary civilization. I think probably the average traditional Kyrene is more literate than the average academic at Cambridge, actually. I found it to be a highly educated community, and I really love that, although it was hard sometimes to play some of the games that they play with poetry, and <laughs> it's a different a, a different level that they operate at. Uh, the Yemenis as well, certainly. So I love that world, and when I get back to it, I'm right into it, and I kind of sort of uh, strip off my Western clothes and dive in with glee. It's, it's so so wonderful to be in that that natural, spontaneous environment where things aren't stressed and people aren't depressed and anxious the way we are in the West. It's a, I, I really love that world. And again, for your listeners, I'm not talking about the mad fundamentalists and the ISIS and the, all of those phenomena, which certainly are stressed and represent a kind of agonistic uh, struggle with the challenges of modernity. I'm talking about the traditional Moscowers, ordinary religious scholars and people who are still in continuity with their sacred past. So yeah, it may be inconsistent, but it doesn't worry me at all. I really enjoy being able to operate in different worlds. 
quoting Latin at high table at Magdalen College in order to impress the dean and play those games, which are not necessarily bad games, I think. And then a couple of days later, I might be in the great sanctuary in Mecca, being blown away by the beauty of everything and hearing some Algerian recite something amazing. Yeah, I, I can't imagine a more privileged position to be in, actually. What was the word you described the, that were more literate there? Kyrene, Tyrene? Kyrene, people from Cairo. I, I lived in Cairo for three years, and the first week or so was a kind of shock to the senses because it's third world mayhem. And then you get to know people, and there are very many sort of deep and extraordinary people there, and you see the fundamental decency, and you see how they really inhabit their literature in a way that we don't. My students don't really know the Bible, even, even though they're divinity students. Uh, they don't quote Dickens. They haven't read Milton. It's a, an illiterate culture, increasingly, with a very few exceptions. But in the Middle East, with traditional people, everybody knows the poetry and everybody knows the Quran and Proverbs. And it's a, a wonderful way that whenever people say something, they back it up with some beautiful quotation that kind of perfumes the conversation. And I found that really wonderful. And I, I still love it. And not just the Arab world, but traditional Turkish people do that as well, traditional Bosnians, certainly people in the subcontinent. And I guess we were that way ourselves. My... Uh, uh, my uh, grandfather had memorized so much poetry, books of it. And they were kind of nonconformist Christians, very strict uh, in keeping the Sabbath. So the only games on Sunday that my father was allowed to play when he was a boy were games involving the Bible. So they used to play this game called Scripture Stars. One child would quote a verse from the Bible, and then another child would say, oh, that's uh, Ephesians 4 verse 23. And if you got it right, it was his turn to play the game. <laughs> and that's how they whiled away their Sundays. They really, and it meant that they were really literate and that they had that richness within them. And in the traditional Muslim world, and I'm sure among traditional Tibetan Buddhists, traditional real Hindus and other communities, there is that deep literacy, which is an irreplaceable enriching of what we are and goes right back to primordial times. What was the only culture we had in the old Stone Age, probably recitals of the deeds of our ancestors, stories of the spirits. We had sagas. We had, it's Homer. It's that world of the epic, the Norse sagas. And I think that that's an important function of the brain and one way in which we uh, claim an identity, continuity with the past. And it's just enriching when you're on a plane to be able to close your eyes and remember something from Shakespeare. It just makes you a a richer and a deeper human being. So yeah, I found that absolutely in the Middle East, although I couldn't compete with some of the games they were playing with cross-rhyming Arabic, strophic poems and things that, that left me far behind. But uh, it was, it, yeah, it was very inspiring. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. It sounds like you're describing many things. It certainly resonates with something that I miss of 
getting a PhD in physics, of learning these mind-blowing experimental results of the particles here, the particles are not there, and equations that are just take a year just to understand yep. the equation. And I miss that. And I had to be in that community to really explore it and not poo-poo it and say, oh, that's all oh, those nerds over there and just dive in. And obviously different realms, but to me, it was always exploration of beauty, finding beauty at deeper and deeper levels and amazed that no matter how deep I would go or how large or how small, you know, it would make sense why a bubbling brook and a tree would be beautiful because of our evolutionary yeah. past. But why would a galaxy be beautiful? We have no exposure to them. Yeah. Or an image from a bubble chamber or something, some of those subatomic things are yeah. staggering. So do you have an explanation? To some extent, I could look at um, the fundamental laws, having like a one over R squared, maybe that causes gravity. No, I don't really have an explanation. I mean, you, you don't think that the almighty might be quite a reasonable explanation for it all? I can't dismiss it. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, it's not the only possibility. To me, it's there. And I, I just want to explore it and enjoy it and, uh, and maintain it. I mean, my work on the environment now is... If I see someone sitting in their car, it's summer right now in New York, so it's really hot. So a lot of times I'll see someone just sitting in their car with the car with the windows closed, the car's idling, and they got the air conditioner on. And I see the exhaust coming out the back of the car. Or for that matter, right now I can hear everyone's got the air conditioners on and it's really loud. And they, they basically turn them on in what May and leave it on 24-7 until September. Yep. A lot of them. And this is not particularly if I try, I can see a beauty in humans living in a certain way. And I look at that pollution, I can force myself to see some beauty in that. I can also look at, I don't know, a bird flying or bug just crawling across the ground. There's a, there's a beauty in that that I think is, I don't have to try to find that beauty. And I see that decreasing and I would like to increase it. Yeah. And I think that has to be an important part of the, the whole discourse about the environment. Too much of it, it seems to me, is utilitarian, pragmatic. We're all going to die. Therefore, we should consume less or not throw plastics into the sea. But if we can aestheticize it and say what's being lost is not just ecosystems, but beauty as well, mm-hmm. I think that incentivizes us a little bit more. And that, I think, is where the religions, I guess all religions, can be really useful. Because for us, that beauty is not just a kind of nice given, but is a kind of radiance that comes from body and force, some aspect of the creative genius of God. So that's why I think that religion is particularly important in the struggle against the biocidal madness that we're now hurtling towards, that what is being destroyed is not just a life support system, but is a whole universe of self-supporting, intrinsically beautiful, intrinsically valuable instantiations of the divine creative power. And certainly in our Islamic scriptures, we have so many verses in the Quran about Everything in the world is praising God. Every bird that flies, every creature that crawls on its belly, everything knows its own form of prayer. So to to poison a fish is not just to reduce our capacity to go fishing, but is much more drastic than that because we have almost blasphemed against something that God created to be perfect and part of a millennial ecosystem of checks and balances that we're now disrupting. It's a kind of fall from Eden, if you like. And um, as I say, I think all of the religions probably will have a lot to say about 
the green movement as needing to be spiritualized and needing to be sacralized, but not in a kind of tedious, uh, ultra-denominational way, but uh, in the sense that human beings have a sense of the sacred, which is often activated when we engage with nature, even though it's not really fashionable to talk about even the sublime in the romantic sense any longer. But yeah, it's cute or it's pretty or it moves us. But that is a, a genuine reflex of the spiritual capacity of the human soul. And the religion should be leading the charge, really, rather than, as it sometimes seems nowadays, kind of tagging along anxiously behind the uh, otherwise quite secular bandwagon of climate change activism. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with a lot of what you said, in particular, that I think it's a lot of reacting. And I mean, a lot of scientists came up with these results, carbon dioxide traps heat and so forth, and sea levels are going to rise. And there's a message of like, you must change. Yep. Devoid of value and meaning. I mean, except, you know, we all care about future generations, but that's abstract to most people, I think, the way it's expressed. And so the reaction is, no, stop telling us what to do. At least I'm, I'm speaking of what I see in this country. And both get locked into, this, into these positions of, of, I'm right, you're wrong. Stop telling me what to do. Do what I say, which is actually a stable systemic structure that doesn't achieve that it's more reacting to the others than to actually achieving what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, if this impending universal apocalypse doesn't unite human beings, then nothing is going to, because we all breathe the same air, birds mm-hmm. don't carry passports, we're all in this together. And if the politicians are locked into the electoral cycle, for instance, and aren't really considering the well-being of people's great-grandchildren, then, then there is a problem. But everybody needs to start shouting, rebelling, if you like. Uh, And as I say, I think if we can spiritualize our defense of nature as being not just useful to us, but beautiful and a celebration of the glory of God, that will add more power to our elbow, I think, and hopefully start to get some of these terrible, congested, if you like, capitalistic structures moving before it's too late. Cambridge is a major centre of climate change research, and the people I talk to here are really very pessimistic. It's not looking good. We've gone past a lot of thresholds already. Uh, We have the Glasgow um, Convention coming up, COB26, shortly. But experts here, you know, the politicians don't like to scare people. And already a lot of people are depressed specifically because of climate change. It's not really good to let the cat out of the bag. But I I talk to some of these guys, even those who are working hard on renewables, Cambridge is a big centre for that, Ah, and they're not even sure that it's a race against time. They think it's going to be mitigation rather than solution at best. So this is where I'd like to put the the rest of the conversation in the context of my technique, that I what I'm working on, Mm -hmm. Uh, what I talked about before we started recording. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? You were just talking about this, the potential, what might happen. But I mean, when you act on the environment, what motivates you? Not what you want to have happen, but what, what is nature in your heart? I guess I think, how can I give thanks? Our forms of worship are very linked to natural phenomena. You know, we get up at dawn for the sunrise, and then at sundown there's another prayer, and the fasting day and the pilgrimage. It's all linked to lunar and solar cycles. So we're very aware of things that I guess are, again, ancient Neolithic ancestors lived by, which is the fact that we are subject to the rising setting of the sun, 
the seasons and we inhabit the natural world. And the natural world, as the Quran says, is one big hymn of praise to its exquisite and perfect maker and creator. So when I see the miracle of the sunset, something within me, maybe a primordial voice, is saying, well, what can you do about this? The sunset, what are you going to do about it? And as a religious person, I know what to do. And that, I feel, gives me a sense of reconnection with very ancient times when human beings were not just uh, enamored of nature, but when they saw a phenomenon of nature, they commemorated it and engaged with it ritually. The uh, Aborigines in Australia, who before the white man turned up, lived in a totally sustainable way with a difficult environment for 40,000 years. And then, you know, my great-grandparents or something went there and released rabbits and overgrazed and destroyed that. When, in some tribes, uh, there is a chance to be said whenever you walk past a given landform in the range in which the, the tribe exists. So everything is sacred, everything is ritualized. So for me, when I see the amazingness of nature or the amazingness of nature as manifested in, I guess, the beauty of women, the beauty of children, human beings are pretty stunning as well. I want to give thanks and I want to have a way of ritually expressing that. And I think that's probably a primordial, maybe even an evolutionary need in human beings, that we want to do something about the overwhelming sense of the sublime that we experience in nature. And again, that is, I think, the basis for a very sound eco-theology, because if nature is helping me to pray, then I need to help nature, because it's kind of kick-starting my, my spiritual motor. We talked about this primordial, the access to something primordial, if I'm reading you right. Have you had direct experience of, of this? I mean, you talked about seeing a sunset. Uh, do you have other experiences that were... If you go to some of the remote villages in Morocco, for instance, even today, that's where you really see sustainability, where the electricity hasn't reached yet. Or maybe there's a line to the village cafe and a kind of television that works some of the time, but otherwise people are living as they always did. And you see the way in which human waste is recycled as fertilizer, the way in which uh, animals are kind of personalized, given names, treated as part of the extended family, the way in which uh, graves are venerated, the way in which the mosque is the center of people's lives, the way in which men and women seem to be smiling all the time. Something you see in Mali as well in Timbuktu, everybody seems so happy even though they haven't got a bean. And you think, well, maybe this is what we were designed to be. So people like Levi-Strauss and other anthropologists say that the real fall was the, about 10,000 years ago when we switched to, to agriculture and started to build cities. But what the human brain is really designed for is how we've been for 95% of the history of our species, which is living in very, very simple environments, subject to the rising and setting of the sun and an awareness of the sacrality of things, even if it's often quite superstitious. And I think we're just malfunctioning nowadays. We're not living in the environment for which we've been designed. And all of these new allergies, as well as mental illnesses, one in five British people is on antidepressants now, eczema, asthma, obesity. You know, we're, we're really dysfunctional, despite all of our technical cleverness. It may just be due to the fact that we're not existing symbiotically with our natural ecosystem any longer, which is what the brain on some deep level actually requires us to be doing. 
in a way that's ritualized, because for as long as there's been humans, as far as we can tell, there's been rituals about the rising, the setting of the sun, the harvest, the hunt. This goes way back. So I think religion, when it's not kind of hung up and strange about the body and sexuality, which sometimes it can be, which I think is destructive and not primordial in the sense, can be enormously valuable in connecting us to something that's really uh, that is a, a restoration of some aspect of the ancient equilibrium of our species. That's my particular take on Islam. When you talk about the this experience, what are the emotions? I mean, you talked about spirituality and, and ritual, and what's the emotional experience of these things for you personally? Well, the emotion is a kind of epiphenomenon of what we take to be an experience of holiness and the presence of God. Human beings have always experienced the world as radiant with holiness. And if you can reclaim that, and I'm sure it's possible in all of the world religions, see the sacrality of things, the light that is just beneath the surface of dumb matter, then the soul is made peaceful. Our hearts are not at rest until they rest in thee, which I think is St. Augustine, but every religion says the same thing. Unless we're embarked on a sacred quest, we're not really part of Homo sapiens functioning properly. We're some weird, strange thing that's happened in the last two or three generations that may or may not be sustainable, and whose greed and imbalance towards nature is now destroying even the vast and enormous and self-repairing ecosystem, which is quite a stunt. But that's how dysfunctional we've become. So, yeah, it's an experience of the holy. It's going to Mecca. It's feeling the presence of God. It's being with holy individuals. It's feeling, it's reading. Even in Cambridge University Library, you can have epiphanies. And one thing that I found in all of the ancient Islamic texts is that when people really overcome ego and grow close to the divine, what they discover is pure love, compassion, appropriateness, beauty. And I think probably that's the same with the Christian mystics, the Jewish mystics and others. I guess I'm not a comparativist. That the reality which sustains the enigmatic outward form of being is all about love, compassion, light, care. However difficult it might be to turn that into a belief in a personal God, but that's what the mystics have all discovered. I mean, they certainly resonate with me more than, hey, hey, ho, ho, so-and-so's got to go. But based on what you were saying about the experience of the holy, the sacred, that's available to us, and whatever we're doing in the past few generations, I invite you, at, this is at your option, if you're up for it, to think of something to do to act on those things that you're not already doing. And there's a distinct question from what a lot of people say, which is, what's the most important thing you can do for the environment? And I'm not asking that at all. I'm not asking, mm-hmm. what can you fix? Or can you do what the New York Times tells you to do? It's to manifest those things in some way that's new, but that has some physical effect in the world that you would describe as improving the world in some way by whatever you consider an improvement? Well, it's actually a long list of areas in which I should improve. Probably I should eat less meat. I can see that increasingly clearly without wishing to become a a vegetarian, which would be socially problematic for me. Um, I mean, I exist in a kind of extended Muslim family situation who kind of altogether under one roof. And one branch of the family farms in Oxfordshire. They have a halal organic farm. So we try to source our meat from there. So the animals have been sort of decently uh, husbanded with sort of love and care. 
but I don't have a problem with that. But it may well be that it's time for me to start cutting back on that and to overcome my uh, the animal within myself. I think it's probably time for that because I think most people who have cut down on meat eating report that they actually feel better for it. Is it something that when you think about doing it, does it connect with the the feelings that you described? Would it be acting on those on those things? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have authorization in the Abrahamic religions to eat animals as long as the animals are cared for uh, compassionately. But we only do so because there is a divine permission. And if you've got a hilltop in Oxfordshire, about the only thing you can do with that land is to graze sheep on it. Um, A lot of the Muslim world is the same. It's arid pastoral territory and people have to eat. But yeah, there's, there's so much in the Muslim scriptures about animals the prophet's love for animals and his ability apparently to communicate with animals and his real anger when he saw people being cruel to animals, that uh, I need to internalize that in a way that's more real uh, than just remembering to feed my cat on time. Would you be willing to share an experience of how it goes? I'm not saying do it forever, although you might choose to, but what I usually say at this point is to make it a smart goal where specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound that usually helps the person. If they just say, I'm going to eat less meat, it's much more easy to do, um, mm-hmm. to do a specific amount less for a specific amount of time. Sure, I'll cut it down by 50%. That would be a good resolution. Would you be willing to share how that went after you're done? Yeah. Okay, so after we finish recording, could we schedule a second call? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm trying to read, I think you look a bit pensive right now. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no. I'm very happy. Because what... What I'm trying to do, you're probably both interacting with me on the level of, of responding to my questions and invitations, mm-hmm. but maybe also picking up on the technique and trying to not just tell you what to do or say, you know, we're all, all going to die if we don't do this, but to connect with something intrinsic. How do we connect with something intrinsic? Yeah. Well, the methods are many, but humanity has always been aware that overcoming the lower self, liberate something that then becomes a kind of sense that's able to intuit the sacrality of things. So, and those things are intrinsic. Yeah. So I I tried to, it's actually my favorite part of the podcast is when asking people what the environment means to them. I've never gotten the same answer twice, nor have I gotten a boring answer. I often get cocktail party answers at first, uh, just polite conversation for a bit. But that passes pretty quickly into something that I think people love sharing that they don't get to most of the time. I think people are used to saying, they expect that if I, if they say, well, I care about X, someone will say, yeah, but don't you know that Bangladesh, hundred million people are going to just be displaced from their homes. And you're thinking about this little thing. It could be a middle-class hobby. It's true that people kind of forensically try to cut down on waste while ignoring the fact that in the larger picture, a few people doing that isn't going to make the difference. It has to be collective global action. And I think that the major world religions should be uh, more active in doing this because four-fifths of the world's population belongs to a major world religion. And incentivizing them should make a difference. And it's already happening across the Muslim world. You have green mosque initiatives everywhere. You have Morocco, for instance. If you look at the Climate Change Performance Index, Morocco is actually at the top. 42% of energy in Morocco comes from renewables now and counting, the world's biggest wind farm. Uh, and that's driven by a lot of the theologians there. Sheikh Ahmed Tawfiq, who's the leading theologian there, has explained the religious need for that. So that is a kind of 
thing that religionists can do that's a bit better than just individual pledges and uh, switching to an electric car or something that, that makes a measurable difference. Yeah, I when I talk to evangelicals here in the US, I believe that it's going to catch for reasons that what you're talking about. And I think it's going to sweep across like wildfire uh, without, you know, you have to, have to, have to, more like yeah. you get to, this is what, this is what we've been talking about. And this is what we've been living. Yeah. And to some extent, I think people saying you're so wrong, you're so bad. This is what you have to do. Straws, don't use them. Is actually preventing a lot of people from exploring their own passions, their own glory, their own sacred. Yeah, and one misses a lot by not seeing the sacrality in the natural world. And if you can defend that sacrality by joining some ecologically sensitive activist group, then that's increasing you in your religious devotion. It shouldn't really be a problem. And evangelicals, I don't think, are scripturally committed to uh, driving gas guzzlers. I I don't see that that's the case. Uh, American evangelicalism perhaps looks a bit difference to how it is in England. We don't have the phenomenon of gun lobby Christianity, for instance. And one of the things that's happening in the Church of England, certainly, is that a lot of parishes are moving out of traditional parish churches and into spaces uh, which are located in more natural environments uh, where they can engage in conservation efforts locally. It's one of the the major changes that's happening uh, in the Church of England right now. And some of them are pretty evangelical. So I think I'm not so crazy to think that this is a, a a really productive direction for, for lack of a better environmentalism to go into, of tapping into, a, as you say, more than a tradition, but something going, a primordial something going back forever, ritualizing it and yep. uh, spiritualizing it. If uh, I'm not sure if these are the right words. They'll, yeah, they'll do. Certainly in my own Muslim tradition, I find very abundant resources for that, respect for the natural world and um, I was just reading a story about the prophet where he's walking on a mountain with two of his friends and he picks up some pebbles from the ground and his companions can hear the pebbles praising God in his hand. This is kind of a famous miracle. And then he put the pebbles in their hands and the pebbles stopped. <laughs> so the capacity to detect the sanctity even of rocks, I think, is an important thing. Nowadays in Mecca, unfortunately, they're building lots of new roads and new hotels. It's been kind of resortified, unfortunately, and they're bulldozing some of the ancient mountains, which is a terrible wound. But, uh, yeah, certainly the prophet of Islam had a very, very intense sense of the sacrality of the material world. And it should be just last week I gave a sermon on the subject um, to our congregation in Cambridge, and it's not really arguable because we follow the prophet. The prophet did it. The prophet said, if you plant anything and a bird eats from it or an animal eats from it, God will reward you every time that happens until the day of judgment. That was my subject for my sermon last Friday. It's a well-attested saying of the prophet. Nobody can disagree. So uh, Islam certainly has these rich resources for regreening, rewilding, if you like, uh, respect for uh, the natural cycle. Uh, and I think that that probably is going to be the next phase in the universalizing of the human pushback against this looming climate catastrophe. And a certain secular bias against religions, I think, needs to be tempered by the realization that it's not the sacred civilizations that got us into this mess. It's materialism. It's smokestack communism. 
it's runaway materialistic capitalism, but it's not really the Bible or the Quran or the Vedas or the Torah, uh, which are otherworldly in orientation and teach us restraint and asceticism and to limit our desires. It's materialism, it's secularity that has caused this imbalance, not the religions. I feel that there's religions will bring, they will talk about values and, and force you to consider your values. And I mean, when I talk to engineers and a lot of scientists, they will talk about efficiency and they'll say the solution is fusion. And to me, technology, efficiency, these, these are valueless. They, they amplify the values of the person using them. And if we're divorced from our values and don't really act, we just follow the values that are of the systems around us. And those systems are promoting growth and efficiency, but not resilience. Then we just amplify the effects that got us into the mess. A desire itself has to be tempered. That's the challenge. But science has the habit of creating technologies that uh, uh, telescopically magnify our desires to a ridiculous degree. And the science always comes with dangers. Who knows what will really happen when they switch on the first real fusion machine? Uh, We don't know what we're playing with. A colleague of mine uh, is a particle physicist who is involved at SOUN, which is the European Union's big particle accelerator, Hadron Collider thing. One of his experiments was uh, required a grant submitted to the European Union, and somebody there spotted that there was a one in something like 27 billion chance that the experiment, if successful, would terminate the existence of the physical universe. (laughs) So, of course, he got a note back from Brussels saying, well, are you sure about this probability? (laughs) And they said yes, and so the experiment went ahead. So, you know, with each new quantum leap in technology, we're facing more dangers. Martin Rees, who's our professor of uh, mathematics, uh, Astronomer Royal in in Cambridge, is also a churchgoer, has written a book called Our Final Century, in which he says that the chances are that one of these new technologies will terminate human life within the next 100 years. It might be nanotechnology, it might be artificial intelligence, it might be some biologically engineered microbe that we can't cope with, but he thinks we've got 100 years less left. So uh, yeah, technology is a two-edged sword, and to say in a kind of pseudo-religious way that science will find a solution is, I think it's not even a scientific thing to say. It yeah. might create a solution, but it's likely to present us with more headaches as well. I think of it, I don't understand why more science and engineering types don't get this. That To me, if we, the way I put it often is that uh, Euclid started with a few axioms and produced Euclidean geometry, but he cannot produce the axioms from other axioms. Those are the starting points. Those are outside. Yeah. And if you don't, th- we have Technology and science will, will act on our values, but we have to bring the values. Science doesn't create the values. Yep. That's something outside. And if we don't deliberately do it, I think of it, it will be done to us. And I, then I would agree with Reese. We, we shall see if a secular way of finding that outside is sufficiently strong and convincing to get us out of this mess. I don't know. So... I propose picking up here after you've cut your meeting take by half for a bit of time. And I'll be curious how that, how that experience changes you, or if not. 
anything to wrap up with? Anything I didn't think to ask this time or anything you want to say to the listeners? Just to repeat myself that in my 40 years journey through these ancient medieval texts, I have found that the great saints have discovered this good news that infinitesimally behind the surface of things, there is goodness, there is peace, there is love, there is affection, there is compassion. And I think we need to be reassured by the discovery of those great souls and this rather uh, rather dark stage in, in the human story. Well, Abdul Hakim Murad, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.